Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. One of the first things that people should understand about the sky is that every culture in the face of the earth had the connections to the sky because everybody lived under those stars. And prior to the Industrial Revolution, they lived under those skies 24-7. They lived under the skies. There was no light pollution to interfere with their, their view of the night sky. And so when it was clear, they could see awesome, awesomeness. And so our people had connections. In Inyo, our people, the Cree people, they had all kinds of stories about the sky. And a lot of them talk about uh, our worldview. A lot of them talk about our, our philosophy. A lot of them talk about our understanding with reality, our understanding with the universe, and our connections to everything. The following words were spoken by Wilfred Buck a member of the Opaskwaya Cree Nation of Manitoba and a science facilitator at the Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Centre. Buck's efforts to teach Canadians of all walks of life about traditional Cree astronomy and cosmology has earned him international recognition. However, he is far from alone when it comes to education and outreach efforts that recognize the contributions of Indigenous astronomers going back tens of thousands of years. In parallel, there are efforts on behalf of the scientific community to recognize these contributions and incorporate them into our naming conventions, star catalogs, and other exploration databases. In the renewed age of space exploration, these are part of a wider effort to finally live up to one of the core principles of human spaceflight. Space, and the exploration thereof, is for the benefit of all humanity. I'm Matt Williams, and this is Stories from Space. Welcome back to Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams, and today I wanted to get into a discussion about something that is uh, near and dear to my heart and also very, very important. That is a recognition of a major revitalization effort on the part of indigenous communities worldwide. Um, We see this happening in many corners of the world, in Australia, New Zealand, in Canada, in the United States, and many other parts of the world besides. And these revitalization efforts, they are restoring indigenous culture and restoring its traditions there. So it's linguistic, it has to do with ceremonies, religious beliefs, uh, and of course, uh, astronomical and cosmological traditions. It is a holistic attempt to revitalize these cultures, which were very nearly wiped out by centuries of colonialism, imperialism, and education models that were very much steeped in Eurocentric racist notions of cultural superiority. And this has been reflected in uh, modern Western astronomical traditions, 
especially where naming conventions are concerned. With some exceptions, naming conventions up until uh, recent years have been incredibly Eurocentric in outlook. However, that is changing, and uh, alongside these revitalization efforts, there is a significant uh, effort on behalf of the scientific organizations of the world, such as the International Astronomical Union in terms of NASA, to recognize and uh, respond accordingly to these efforts. And that is what I want to talk about today. First, addressing um, some of the traditional beliefs that are being taught and emphasized, and the response of the international community, and their attempts to integrate these efforts into uh, astronomical studies and, uh, and convention. So first of all, to, uh, to repeat what Buck said, because it cannot be emphasized enough, and it's, it is fundamentally true, it's that the tradition of stargazing, of looking up at the night sky and of seeing patterns in the heavens, in the movement of the stars and of the planets. This is something that goes back to the very beginning of, of human history. And we're talking uh, 200,000 to a few million years, easy. As long as we've been able to look up at the night sky, we've been able to find meaning there and solace and inspiration and that in turn has inspired uh, every single culture that has ever existed. It's inspired their their mythology, their cosmology, their religion, their ancestral beliefs, their ceremonies and practices. And it is, uh, of course, very appalling that these traditions have been suppressed or that deliberate attempts have been made to extinguish them and suppress them based on racist notions. Especially when one considers the sheer value that these traditions had. And not just to the indigenous peoples, but to our current and modern cosmological models and uh, an understanding of the night sky. As Europeans spread throughout the world and conquering and uh, pillaging and uh, assimilating, they incorporated a great deal of stargazing and cosmological and astronomical knowledge from the people that they, uh, that they colonized and used it to create what is today the uh, internationally recognized IAU's 88 recognized constellations. But of course, those constellations are very much representative of uh, of ancient uh, Greco-Roman traditions. They don't really take into account these other traditions. And these traditions were incredibly vast because, like all cultures, uh, the indigenous peoples of of North America, of South America, of... uh, of the South Pacific, of Australia and Austronesia, and of Africa. The motions of the sun and the moon in the sky, the the motions of the constellations through the zodiac, the positions of the planets in the night sky, all of these things were seen as, they were used as a a calendar, as a means of timekeeping, navigation, and and orienteering, and uh, also for, uh, for ceremonies, and feasts, and harvests, and periods of fasting, they were inextricably bound up with the local culture and the local geography and the entire sense of space, place, meaning, and identity. So they were, they were in a word, sacred. As has been said, these are not quaint little stories. These are, these are things that came from the same wellspring of creativity that inspired uh, ancient uh, Sumerian and Babylonian and, by extension, Greco-Roman cosmology. And it is something that still inspires us to this day. 
the night sky, the moon, the sun, all the celestial objects, the stars, these belong to no one, and yet they belong to us all in a way in that they are part of our collective culture and heritage. We all draw the same inspiration and hope by looking up into the cosmos and seeing ourselves out there. A perfect example here is the Northern Lights, or Aurora Borealis. For indigenous people of Canada, for the Northern Cree, for the, the Inuits, and many other nations who have witnessed this, uh, this fantastic phenomenon for tens of thousands of years continuously, that gives a very, very good illustration of how embedded astronomy was to their culture. In fact, the entire ceremonial relationship there, as Blake explained, with the sweat lodge, with songs, with the sun dance, with fasting and ceremonies, uh, a lot of these were in reference to the stars. They had to do with the movement of the stars through the zodiac and the movement of the planets. And, and in particular, yeah, the cycles of the sun. All of these things they understood are very, very much connected to life here on Earth and the patterns that we need to follow in order to uh, not just survive, but thrive as people. Among the Korean Inuit and others, the Northern Lights were seen as something incredibly significant. Uh, they didn't just see them as uh, wavy patterns in the sky that were beautiful to behold. They believed that these, in fact, were, this is where people came from that they came from the skies themselves and what you were seeing was spirits who had returned to the sky they were dancing across it and so there was a very very strong connection with that it's like this is here we are on earth we look up at the heavens it's where we came from down to here it's where we return our ancestors are up there and Wilfred Buck said it very very well he was quoted as saying this in an interview with the CBC he said, in the wintertime, when these lights were in the sky most prominently, there was a connection. A connection to alternate realities, to the spirit world. And that connection was strong. So in other words, it, it went to the heart of their their beliefs and their, their cosmology. Their entire sense of the meaning of life was bound to the heavens. And you can see this with, with so many other uh, examples there drawn from astronomy, like uh, the Pleiades Cluster. That is something that, uh, or the Seven Sisters, as we know them in, in Western cosmology and astrology, uh, this had universal importance to all cultures that were able to actually uh, to witness that cluster in the night sky. And among the Cree, they knew it, the Pleiades Cluster as the uh, Pakon Kisik, which uh, literally means hole in the sky. And what that what that meant was uh, they believed that this was basically a, a wormhole in the cosmos or a gateway to another reality, a spiritual reality. And there too, it was believed that this was the, the portal through which humanity was introduced to Earth. And again, someday when you die, you return to the sky. So this, this had uh, very interesting parallels to theoretical physics, like a wormhole, but of course expressed in uh, spiritual terms. But again, when it comes to astronomy and cosmology, the line between these two is rather tenuous and really quite, uh, really quite brilliant. The Pleiades Cluster, um, in particular, is a, is a very fantastic uh, source of myth-making and mythology there when you look at uh, indigenous cultures. 
any any culture that was able to see the Pleiades in the night sky had their own myths surrounding it there. And looking at uh, yeah the indigenous mythology of North America, it is a very very rich uh, topic. For example, the the Blackfoot people, uh, referring to the uh, semi nomadic people who lived uh, on the uh, the Great Plains and uh, hunted the bison. The Pleiades cluster actually plays a very prominent role in their uh, life cycle, in their uh, and in their uh, their hunts. It it shows the mythological and spiritual dimension of their of their life cycle, basically. So, in short, the rise of the Pleiades cluster in the night sky it signals to the hunters of the Blackfoot nations to assemble on their hunting grounds and get ready to hunt the bison because. The rise of the Pleiades cluster coincided with the change in the seasons, signaled when the bison would be migrating again. And according to the legend, the Pleiades cluster originated from a bunch of orphans who were rejected by their community, the uh, the Lost Boys, and the only friends they had were the dogs who came to visit them as they were out and roaming uh, the, the Great Plains and trying to survive and when they died they became the stars in the night sky and this this angered the uh, the sun man who was essentially like a, uh, a creator figure in there in this mythology he was angered by this mistreatment so he punished the people of the land by triggering a massive drought which caused the buffalo to disappear but the uh, the dogs who represent a sort of a messenger spirit in this lore, I believe, they intervened and, and asked that the Sun Man show mercy upon the people. So the buffalo were restored, but only during the season in which the Pleiades cluster was overhead. One can see that there is a deep connection here, a, a sort of a morality tale with a connection to real world events and uh, rituals and the very things on which uh, that the Blackfoot people uh, depended upon in order to live, thrive, and, uh, and ultimately maintain their community. For the Iroquois, there's a similar story that says that the Pleiades cluster began as six boys who climbed atop a hill and were dancing to a tune that a seventh boy was singing. And on one occasion, they danced so fast and so energetically that they became so light and began to ascend to the skies where they became the stars. Yet another great example, and this one also has a very real-world uh, and very physical connection, uh, are the Kiwa people of the Great Plains. And this legend is of the Seven Star Girls, as it's called. In the story, the seven girls were being chased by bears, and they, to take shelter, they climbed atop a low rock. But as they realized it wasn't high enough to save them, they implored the earth to save them, and the rock shot out of the ground and grew higher and higher until they were pushed all the way up into the sky, and they became the, those stars. Now, this legend is directly connected to a feature in Wyoming, this large boot called the uh, Devil's Tower. And I, I don't know what the uh, traditional Kiwa name uh, is for that there. It's simply known as Devil's Tower in English. But this is seen as the rock that ascended these girls to heaven. And the, the grooves on Devil's Tower, part of that natural, this natural formation, uh, were said to be the marks of the bear's claws who were trying to climb after them. So a very, very real-world connection. And... All of this really highlights the importance of indigenous astronomy and indigenous naming conventions because it's that 
These were the people who lived here since time immemorial. They were uh, the first and only humans that, that began living in this land over 40,000 years ago. So yeah, their legends are very much tied to space and place and the meaning you, one draws from that. That is... That is the cornerstone of, you know, a people's relationship with the land and uh, and continuous habitation. And so, as we are occupying this land, these are traditions we must and need to respect. And another, there really are so many myths and legends that are relating to uh, the stars and the and the uh, the wandering stars, in other words, the planets. But Mars is one that uh, is especially fascinating. And again, this came from uh, Blake, who relates the, uh, in, in his educational efforts there, he relates the uh, Cree traditions and how they recognize Mars's rather uh, um, interesting characteristics in the night sky. Um, those who are familiar with uh, stargazing and, uh, and planet gazing, um, they're familiar with retrograde motion. Now, in the case of Mars and also Jupiter, and any planet uh, beyond Earth's orbit around the Sun, basically, if you watch Mars, it will orbit in the night sky from west to east, but at certain times during the year, its orbit, its apparent motion, begins to slow down, circle back, and then circle back again and continue on its way. This is something that had uh, baffled and puzzled astronomers in the Western world, for example, uh, the Greeks and uh, and everyone up into Copernicus, and it was actually one of the means through which Copernicus was able to argue that the sun was at the center of the cosmos. It's because retrograde motion indicated that, um, yeah, we are orbiting the sun along with Mars, and what we see is its motion in relation to us, not its not its own independent motion around us. So for the Cree, there there were specific names for this. For example, uh, the term Kitom Pampani, which I'm positive I'm not pronouncing right, but in Cree, that, that means literally circle back. And that's, so they recognized Mars's retrograde motion and they, they tracked it. And there was even a, a nickname for it known as uh, Muswa Akak, which means moose spirit. And what that refers to is the fact that when a moose is startled, it will, it will double back. It'll circle back around itself and then continue running off. So, just like uh, the ancient uh, Mesopotamians and Babylonians and then Greeks, Romans, and Europeans who were all tracking the motions of Mars over time, puzzling over this retrograde motion and their attempts to characterize it, the Cree did the exact same thing. They characterized it in familiar and relatable terms. So, as whereas Ptolemy said that that motion we see, oh, that's wheels within wheels, Priest said, well, it's basically doing what uh, animals in the wild that we've known and lived among for, for since time immemorial. It's a, it's a quirk of its behavior. And so, as I mentioned, um, alongside these revitalization efforts, there are international efforts to recognize these traditions and, and recognize the contributions they have made. In Australia, for example, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization in 2020, they decided that their 64-meter Parkes radio telescope should be renamed. And they decided to give it the traditional name of Muriang, which in the Aborigine tradition, that is where the creator spirit lives. It, it literally translates to sky world. And the creator spirit lives there, and that is where all life originated in what uh, was known as the dreaming. 
in the Aborigine um, belief system, the dreaming is essentially the state of the spirit world, right? It's it's where we go and we die. It's where we came from before we were born. It's uh, a very very brilliant concept there, like a, basically comparing it to a, a permanent state of sleep. Or just, rather, not a permanent one, just a state of sleep. Uh, this effort was the result of two years of the telescope staff working with the Wiradjuri nation and uh, the elders to recognize their continuous habitation there for over 65,000 years and how their traditions should be represented by scientific instruments uh, that are on their land. Skyworld is was a very, very, very fitting name because, of course, this is uh, it's a radio telescope. It's listening to the heavens. And the idea that, you know, someone may be out there parallels the creator myth. Also, two other smaller telescopes were also given names from the Wiradjuri belief system. And NASA. NASA has done some interesting efforts in recent years. Um, for example, on Mars, the Perseverance rover was studying an area that, that in many ways resembled the American Southwest. The New Mexico, Arizona... These lands that are dry and rocky and craggy and have very, very interesting features caused by wind and, uh, and water uh, erosion. And so there was um, an effort that was uh, made underway where uh, Aaron Yazzie, who is of, uh, is of the Dene Nation and who also works with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, he spearheaded this with uh, the Navajo Nation to assign Navajo names, or names from the Navajo language, to local features. And so, in particular, one of the prominent rocks that Perseverance had studied, they decided to name it after the Navajo name for Mars, which is Maz, which does it very much seem like an anglicized version there. In any case, it is the standing name that the Navajo used to refer to Mars in the night sky. And it was one of 50 names that had been suggested for features that uh, had been studied by Perseverance. In particular, the description of the local terrain. They used a Navajo uh, description, which, which I will fail to pronounce here, just to warn you. But Tsewozi uh, B. Hazmiz, which translates to rolling rows of pebbles like waves. It's an actual terrain description used to describe the traditional lands of the Navajo. Also, the name uh, Bidzil, which means strength, Holnij, which means respect, and they even gave Perseverance uh, the honorific of a Navajo name, which in the Navajo language translates to Ha'ahoni. And interestingly enough, this wasn't uh, the first time that uh, indigenous naming conventions were applied to Mars. The, within the Gale Crater, where the Curiosity rover has been uh, exploring since 2012, an area of rock in the uh, Murray Formation was named Winnipeg, and this was in keeping with naming the features after terrestrial uh, uh, analogs, um, like uh, Yellowknife Bay resembled uh, what the tundra around uh, Yellowknife looks like. In this case, Winnipeg is a Cree name, which is uh, Weenip, which means muddy water, and that describes the Winnipeg Lake and the Red River, which floods annually and deposits uh, silty water throughout the whole area. So, yeah, here too, it was we wanted a terrestrial example that resembles what we're looking at here. And this area apparently looks like a cold and muddied area because, yes, it was once a, a lake bed, the Gale Crater, and there were, there is all kinds of uh, 
sedimentary deposits and clays that formed in the presence of water. So yeah, that apparently was the parallel. Um, but that also demonstrates just how connected, how these names describe a, uh, a deep connection to the land. And seeing them used in the same way for astronomical purposes is a, is a very lovely positive development. Last but not least, um, in 2017, the International Astronomical Union, or IAU, their working group on star names, they assigned 86 new names for stars that were derived from uh, non-Western traditions, and that included Aborigine, Chinese, Coptic, referring to uh, modern-day Ethiopia, Hindu, Mayan, Polynesian, and South African traditions. So, for example, the uh, a binary star system in the Scorpius constellation, the stars in question are Mu-1 and Mu-2 Scorpii, and instead they decided to rename them Kamidi Mura and Pipi Rima. These are names derived from the Khoikhoi people of South Africa, which Kamidi Mura translates to the eyes of the lion, whereas uh, Pipi Mira is derived from Tahitian mythology, and it refers to uh, twins that ran away from their parents and became stars in the night sky, very similar to a number of North American indigenous origin myths. Meanwhile, uh, the star Theta Tau Tauri, which is a part of the Hades cluster in the Taurus constellation, was assigned a Mayan name of Chamukui, which refers to a small bird. And four other stars were given names from uh, the Aboriginal Australian mythologies. And these were Epsilon, Scorpi, Epsilon, uh, Crucius, Zeta, Phoenicius, and Sigma Canis Majoris, which are now known as Larawag, Guinan, Warren, and Unur Gunite. Uh, as a side note, I invite correction on any of these pronunciations, please. Other initiatives include Native Skywatchers, which was founded in 2007 and is dedicated to remembering and revitalizing indigenous star and earth knowledge. In 2020, this initiative received a grant from NASA in order to collect and revitalize the ancient stories and traditions of the Lakota, Ojibwe, and other nations. The U.S. National Park Service and International Dark Sky Association have collaborated with Native Skywatchers in order to conduct astro-tourism experiences and teach indigenous astronomy through their parks at Mesa Verde in Colorado and the Voyagers National Parks in Minnesota. Located outside of Calgary, the Rothney Astrophysical Observatory, which is overseen by the University of Alberta, is working with the local indigenous communities to teach about the astronomical traditions of the native Cree, Blackfoot, and Métis nations. This is known as the Indigenous Skies Program. Today, universities worldwide are developing the necessary curriculum for certification in indigenous astronomy. The message behind all of these efforts is clear. The sky is for everyone and always has been. And if the future of humanity lies in space, then that future is for all of humanity. I'm Matt Williams, and this has been Stories from Space. hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.